Oh my goodness, how good was that? Yes, man alive, I was, uh, I was like, I would just be quite happy just to do that for the rest of the morning. That was good. This, is, uh, this month is our uh, missions awareness month, so you just saw Tess and Brianne uh, there who are serving in Africa, an amazing, uh, two amazing young women who uh, actually went to KCS when I was there, and so I know Tess and Brianne well, and, uh, and the two videos actually tie together really well. You've got school, uh, Pursuit School of Evangelism, and then you've got Tess and Brianne who are actually living out being evangelists through the gifts that God has given them. You've got a, a fully qualified nurse and a very qualified engineer using their gifts to spread the gospel, and that's what Pursuit of Evangel- School of Evangelism, I'm going to get the name right, it seems that like I'm on the video, that's fairly important, isn't it? We just call it Pursuit School, so... Um, but uh, that's something really we want you to pray about. Could please go on the website, sign up for some newsletter. And uh, we're believing this September we're going to have a first cohort of people going through the school and, uh, and learning how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context that God has placed them in. And so that might be even something you are interested in. There's no age limit to this at all. If you want more details as to what that looks like, then please go on the web. And we're also thinking and praying through how to make this available to people who are in full-time employment, so um, I can't necessarily commit to a whole week in the school, so pray about that as well. We feel like God may be saying something to us about how we can do it so we can open it up to the whole church, um, so it's pretty, pretty exciting. It's a, it's a good segue into what uh, I want to share this morning, and uh, we're, it is Palm Sunday, we're moving towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, where Easter Sunday next week, please invite somebody to come because I'm praying this place just explodes with celebration and the gospel and this will be a good Sunday for you to bring somebody um, and as Brad has said, we, we've made these available for you to take into your uh, into your uh, neighborhoods, into your families, into your work to invite somebody to come along. But this week, as we're looking towards... Uh, next Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I really want to frame um, really what the message of the Bible is. The reason I'm going to share this with you this morning, we haven't got any scriptures to show you, but I'm hoping and praying that you will make notes and you will think and meditate every day this week as we come towards Good Friday. Because this message really is uh, the message of the Bible. And, and so I'm going to do my very best to share what really is, in many ways, uh, inexplicable. Which is the love and the passion of God as shown through the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, so let's pray before I do that. And we're going to start with, in Isaiah 53. And uh, we have a few scriptures to share. Father, as I stand before you, I am so... Uh, acutely aware of how I am unable to give this message justice. Lord, my words will always fail the magnitude of the gospel. And yet, Lord, I'm thankful that I can stand on the promise that you have given to us all, that, Lord, that your spirit, it's by your power, by your might, not our words, not our gifting, not our ability, Lord, that the gospel is communicated and made alive, Lord, by your Spirit. And that is what I'm praying for this morning, that as we turn our attention upon these events, 
that God, it would become very real to us right now. That Holy Spirit, you would remind us of how much we are loved as shown through your willingness to give yourself. We ask these things, Lord Jesus, thankful that you go before us already moving in our hearts. Thankful, Lord, for your power and your ability. In your precious name, Jesus, we love you. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 53 in verse 3. Let me just read a few verses to you. Isaiah 53. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Isaiah prophesies in this passage about an event that was going to happen hundreds of years later. He's pointing to what Christians would say is the center of our faith. And that is the cross, everything that that symbol represents. And so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the cross this morning. But in order for us to understand the magnitude and the passion and the love of Christ as shown through the cross and at Easter time, we need to take a step back and understand some history as to why Jesus had to die on the cross. You know, as Christians, we may say very quickly that Jesus died on the cross because he loves us and it's to forgive us of our sins. And what you'll find in our culture is a question, it's a good question, and as Christians, we should be able to answer it, is, well, okay, Jesus died for my sins and he loved me. Why? What difference does that make? I don't actually think I'm a sinner. I don't actually think that I have any issues. I'm a good person. I I give. I'm charitable. I'm a kind person. I'm better than that person. And so there might be a confusion as to why it is that Jesus died on the cross. And so the statement that he died for our sins because he loved us is 100% true. But I want to kind of go underneath that a little bit and go, but but Why? And as we've just read in Isaiah, that Isaiah tweezes out some truth as to why Jesus died. And so my my hope and my prayer over the next few minutes is to expound a little bit on what Isaiah says, to jump into some history, and then ultimately for it to land deeply in our hearts, whether you are a Christian this morning or whether you are not a Christian and you're just thinking this thing through, my hope and prayer is that something will come alive inside of you and you will be transformed Again, for some of you, refreshed as we just prayed, fall, Holy Spirit, fall afresh on me. See, the Bible is the greatest rescue story 
ever told. And we like a good rescue story. We like a good hero story. Um, and some of us can relate in some ways. Maybe you've, maybe you've rescued somebody. I know, I don't know if it's Tracy here today. I know Rick, Tracy has literally jumped into the ocean in Blackpool and rescued somebody and then resuscitated. I mean, now that is like, that's, that's the ultimate rescue. First of all, jumping into the sea at Blackpool in and, in and of itself in Britain is, is of tremendous faith and um, you know, that, that she came out alive herself was incredible. Um, but we love a great rescue story. And you see, the heart of God has shown through the scriptures is this is God's book of love. It's a rescue story of how Jesus comes to our rescue. Jesus comes and delivers. And there's all sorts of words tied up, whether it be redeemed or, or rescues or pays a ransom or however you want to frame it. Jesus comes to our rescue. So as a, if I put my skeptical mind on, I would say, okay, that's all very well, but who says I need rescuing? awfully arrogant. That's kind of a, uh, you know, a presumptuous thing to say that somebody needs rescuing. So let's, let's move back. Let's go right to the beginning of time as Christians. We believe that God created man and woman in his image. And, and if we, we, the, the frame of reference, the doctrine, you, you can frame it using the words Imago Dei, image of God, the image of God, that mankind is created in the image of God. And then uh, we were given rules, we were given, uh, we were given kind of framework, boundaries, if you like, as to this is how you must live. If you really want to see this design, this Imago Day coming alive in a purposeful, joy-filled, peace-filled way, then these are the rules. And God was very clear to Adam and Eve, these are the rules by which you live by. And, and then we know the story. Adam and Eve, through pride, then sinned, and sin enters the world. The, the nature of sin enters the heart of mankind forever to taint. So you have something that really is quite miraculous in and of itself, which is the human life and human body broken by sin. Broken by sin. And as I've said many times from this pulpit, if you want evidence in a small way as to how that sin is prevalent in the heart of man and, and, and mankind, is you just need to have children. Amen? Have a kid or two. You want to see, you just want to see like, man, where, where does that come from? You know, we've never taught our children to disobey or lie. That was not a conversation I remember having with any of them. And yet there's just this inbuilt, and we don't like to think of this because we look at them and we go, they're so cute, they're so beautiful, and then you live with them. <laughs> like, actually, no, there's something broken, there's something wrong. And no matter how many books you read about parenting, and, and, I, and it always makes me smile, and, you know, nothing wrong with reading about parenting, but Sarah and I never read anything about parenting, and you could probably go, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But... Um, you know, you can get piles of books and magazines, do this, don't do that, say this, say that, you know, put them on the bottom step, hit them with the bottom step. No, I'm joking, don't. You know, all these different kind of reasons and, and, and methods as to how to bring your children up, but you feel like you're battling against a tide. You're battling against a nature. And that nature is sin. You see, sin through pride enters the world And we celebrate at Easter that Jesus, who was sinless, 
in stark contrast to us, we are not. And if you're offended by my suggesting that children in their nature are sinful, then look at yourself. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our motives, our responses, our motivations, things that we do, things that we don't do, things that we're ashamed of, stuff that we know that we don't even want to talk about, lies deep within the heart of mankind. And if you cannot find evidence of that in your own life because somehow you are so blinkered that you actually just see yourself in a ray of light, then look at the world. This morning we read that two bombs were set off in Egypt in Coptic churches total of 40-some people dead by an act of terrorism from ISIS, hundreds of people injured. The reports, as I've just been reading literally a few minutes ago on BBC, horrendous reports coming from eyewitnesses. There is a sin problem in this world. And no amount of politics, no amount of money, no amount of social engineering, no amount of justice, social justice, None of that is bad, but that will not deal with the problem that we have. We are in need of rescuing. See, the Bible says it's very clear that sin ultimately leads to death. And it's interesting if you read about around uh, the issue of sin and death through the Bible, what you'll find is there's an eternal death. There's a death that we believe happens after we die, but there's also a present death, that there's a decaying, a death in the heart, there's a death in, in, in the thought, in soul, in spirit, and you can see it in the eyes of people as we go about our day to day. The Bible says sin leads to death. Why is that? So, you know, I'm asking these questions. I'm looking through the lens of a skeptic. Okay, I can accept, maybe a skeptic might say, I can accept that the world has got problems. I can accept that we need rescuing. Whether you believe it's Jesus who rescues or not, then I think we can all find common ground that we have a problem. That that problem actually does lead to death in some way, whether it be physical or spiritual or emotional, psychological. But why does it lead to death? Well, again, the Bible has an answer for us in that as well. I'm just going to get rid of these keys. The Bible has an answer for that as well. And, and, and it says this, it says that because God is so pure, so holy, it can have nothing to do with sin. That God can have nothing to do with sin. So there's a separation that happens between God and man. But let's pull it back a little bit further. That if we believe everything that we just said about the design of God, what actually means is we're separated from the design that God has for us, which is ultimately communion with him. So we are designed to have relationship, we're designed to have connection, we're designed to be be accepted and, and one with God. And so this separation that happens as a result of sin is because God is so pure, so holy, that he cannot have anything to do with sin. So there's a disconnection. Doesn't matter how great my iPod or my, my computer is, if I am disconnected from the source of power, eventually that's going to run out and lead to, forgive me for putting it this way, but death. It runs out. It's empty. It's useless. 
I need to be reconnected with the power source for my computer to work. I, mankind, you and I need to be connected with the God who designed us in order for us to truly be fulfilled and feel purpose and connected in relationship and with life. And if you want evidence of that, yeah, Glenn, I don't believe you. Okay, let's just search within yourself. It says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 that there is eternity in every Man and every woman, there's a mark of God that there's this desire for more. There's this constant pursuit. What we do is, is that we, we look for uh, answers and, uh, and we pursue after things that we ultimately believe will give us that which we are designed for. But all it does is leave us empty. There's evidence of brokenness everywhere. So this sin... And the Bible talks in, in, frame, in, in references to like debt. There's this debt of sin that builds up in every one of us and in mankind. Sin upon sin upon sin. All because of the sin nature. There's sins and sins and sins and it builds up. And there's a debt, an ever-increasing debt. More significant than any financial debt that we can get into. But a spiritual debt. And friends... Christians, we need to be reminded as we gaze at the cross, that debt will not be ignored. It has to be paid. You see, this is where people might get uncomfortable. They might say, well, I can believe in a God of love. The Bible talks about God being, being loving and kind and merciful and generous and, and accepting. And, and I would say a very loud amen. In fact, I would say Christians need to live in the light of that. Absolutely. But the, God also, but the Bible also talks about other attributes of God. That God is a, is a holy God. He's a just God. He's a good God. And because God is a God of love, as described in the Bible, that love also makes him a just God. A God that cannot just ignore, that, that in fact, if he just said, you're, you're, you're all forgiven, there is no such thing as sin, that in and of itself would, would actually strip God of his divinity, so therefore is impossible, because God has to be just. And again, I've said many, many times from this pulpit, we have no problem with people paying debt as long as we don't have to pay it. (laughs) We have no problem with people having justice brought against them if they've done something wrong as long as that person is not us. In fact, you know, you you watch TV and you read the average novel, I'll guarantee you there's some form of justice in it. We love the bad guy being found and brought to justice or the bad girl but we don't like that idea that the things that we have done wrong, habitually committed and done and thought and, 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 and acted in such a way that is against the design of God, that this debt of sin that builds up, that somehow we think God is just going to go, oh, let's just forget it. No. Friends, no. It will be dealt with in a holy, just, and good way. See, we have no way of closing that gap. This is so fundamental. Please listen. There is nothing you can say, do, give, volunteer, um, think, read, meditate on, put yourself in a weird position in yoga class on, make your abs more sticky out like. 
more beautiful. You can tuck and you can pull and you can do whatever you want to do to your body. You can send your kids to the best schools, give them the best opportunity. You can earn money, you can get a good house, you can give millions to charity. Not one of those things is going to close that gap. Not one of them. And deep down inside, we know that to be true because not one of those things gives us the answer that we truly long for inside. Because the money and the kids and the house and the car and the ambition and the goals and the dreams will let you down. We're created for so much more than that. Let's not, let's not do God a disservice by thinking that we can be so easily satisfied with that which the world thinks is important. You are created for so much more. You can't make that gap close. And so God, in the, especially in Exodus and through with his people after the sin of Adam and Eve, then he brought in the sacrificial system. And this is very important because the sacrificial system looks towards the cross of Christ. In fact, just before that, there was this event called Passover. If you read the, the plagues when the, uh, the Israelites were um, sorry, just after the, uh, the, the sacrificial system, that there's, this, there's this event that happens where God gives instruction for blood to be placed on the, on the door frames of the, of the houses. You know the story. And God passes over that, that because of the blood, there is salvation, that that blood substitutes something. And in the sacrificial system that follows in Exodus and Leviticus, and, and you can read about all the different rules that we're quoted on, by the way, as Christians. Well, he says in Leviticus this, and that's therefore what Christians believe, and that's the whole of the story. But the essence of the Levitical law is that sacrifice must be made for the sins of the people. There's something about blood. Right at the beginning when God actually makes the first sacrifice of an animal by creating clothes or making clothes for Adam and Eve. There's a shedding of blood. There's life blood. There's, that blood is so important in the Bible. When God sees blood, it, it points to something that is sickening about sin and death. That there is a punishment, if you like, applied to the sacrifice that appeases a God who must have justice. But it wasn't sufficient. See, the Passover and the, the laws, the, the, the death of an animal, listen to these words, this is important. The death of an animal was a substitute for the punishment required by the person who was making the sacrifice. So the high priest would come and make sacrifices as a substitute for the punishment that the person truly deserved. So this animal appeased and satisfied the wrath of God. We don't like that word, wrath. It's actually mentioned over 600 times in the Old Testament alone. So there's this bringing together, listen, God and man brought together, made one by the substitute of an animal in the Old Testament, shedding of its blood. Can you see where I'm going? It's called substitutionary atonement. Something has to die in order for there to be at one atonement. But the Old Testament was an insufficient system. And God actually points this out. It just didn't do enough. 
And you see, our plans, our sacrifices are also insufficient for bringing God and man together. We work so hard to to find that fulfillment and purpose and joy and peace. And we make sacrifices to do so. We have plans. We have saviors, if you like. We give our life to it in the hope that somehow we can fulfill the design for which we've all been created for in order for us to feel that joy and peace. Even if you're not a Christian this morning, you are making sacrifices in order to hopefully feel like you have purpose and fulfillment and love and acceptance in your life. You're doing it every day. So to say, well, that seems nonsense. No, you are literally living that out. You are sacrificing in order to hope that this savior, whatever that savior might be, might be a job, might be your kids, might be your family, it might be your ambitions, it might be your money, it might be your car, it might be getting to the next level of call of duty, whatever it might be, you are looking to that thing to make you feel good about yourself. It will always fail. God had a plan. So we know the reality of sin. We know we need transformation. And we look to sacrifices. But Isaiah, as we read at the beginning, he tells us of another plan. A sacrifice to end all sacrifices. They brought him, Jesus, to the place called Golgotha. You see, Jesus came to live the life. And I love the way, uh, I'm not sure whether Tim Keller actually was the first to say this. It's certainly been quoted a lot. That Jesus came to live the sinless life that we are unable to live and then went to die the death that we ought to die. They brought him to the place called Golgotha. This is in Mark chapter 15. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Commentators tell us different things about the wine mixed with myrrh. And and so as Jesus is on the cross, he's offered this strange mixture. Some commentators would say it's actually a crude form, a a crude painkiller. Um... And, you know, that doesn't, for me, it doesn't really tie in with the idea, as we're going to see in a second, of what crucifixion was all about, which was intense pain and shame. Why would they want to relieve that? Other commentators would say that the mixture of of old wine and myrrh was actually used as a crude form of detergent for cleaning and getting rid of dirt and sewage. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25, and on the third hour, they crucified him. So, so far, we're now kind of getting to the center of my sermon. I've talked about how we've all been created in a perfect design and that resonates and echoes through mankind. Well, I've talked about how we all recognize that we have a sin problem, even though people may not use the word sin. We recognize we need to be transformed. And we recognize that all the things that we're trying to do to fail in this world and internally, and we need rescuing. That God is a perfect God who is perfectly just and there's a debt of sin that is building up and he will find justice. There will be a punishment. And so he used the sacrificial system as a way of substituting mankind so that they would not receive that punishment, but the animal would. There was a shedding of blood. There was a death. There was a punishment for the sin that had been built up. And then steps in Jesus says in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, in him we were chosen. 
You see, God's plan is, is talked about right, it says, before the foundation of the world in Ephesians, but you can find it in Genesis, that God says there is a plan coming, there's a, there's a better way, that, that Jesus will come, and immediately the whole of the Bible resonates with this rescue story, that this sacrifice is insufficient in the Old Testament, but there's a better way of coming, and for hundreds and thousands of years, men were prophesying about Jesus coming, and I read one of the most uh, profound prophecies in Isaiah 15 that he is coming, Jesus is coming, and he is going to be despised, he's going to be rejected. And then we find ourselves gazing at the cross, the culmination, the mission. Jesus did not come to live a good life as an example to us. That was one aspect of his life. The mission was the cross. The mission was the cross. And friends, our mission is the cross. Christians, your mission is not TFSAs, RSPs, your kids, your families, your cars. And I say that having four children and not great TFSAs and RSPs, I must admit. But I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that is not my mission. My mission is not making my house look better or my self look better or anything else that we get caught up with. Those are distractions from the ultimate mission. The mission is the cross. The mission is the cross. Some say that crucifixion is perhaps, historians tell us, perhaps the most painful way to die ever conceived by man. Cicero said, it was the cruelest and most hideous manner of execution. You see, as we, as we look at this, at this cross, there's some debate as to whether or not the cross was actually T-shaped or cross-shaped. It's more likely that Jesus actually, if you look in Mark chapter 15, there's this description of Jesus actually carrying probably what would have been the cross member of the cross, that they would regularly recycle so it would already be covered with the blood and, and the decay and the death of previous people who had actually died on the cross before Jesus. Now remember last week I said that Jesus had gone through an intense um, uh, um, scourging. And I described to you how the scourging in the cat of nine tails would potentially remove uh, bone and, 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 and could even puncture lungs some commentators have said that it would be, could be likened to have been shot at very close range by a 12-bore shotgun. It would rip your body apart. Jesus would already have been exhausted, near to death, when they gave him this cross member. Could be anything up to 100 pound in weight. And we, said in Mark, and we see in Mark chapter 15 that he stumbles and falls. And there's evidence later, and I'll point this out to you in a second, but there's evidence later to show that Jesus literally died of a broken heart because of the water. And I don't understand all this. We have doctors in the room, but the the water around the heart could suggest that the heart had been bruised and been damaged already. And again, we're told that perhaps that is a result of him carrying the cross member, falling and it crushing him as he falls to the ground. Jesus is already close to death. Crucifixion was the most painful way to die ever conceived by man. It was shameful to even talk about 
the crucifixion. It was a form of punishment that was reserved for the vilest and most despised criminals at that time. See, the Romans were very, very good at killing people. They could do it swiftly. They could do it easily. But crucifixion wasn't about killing the person. Crucifixion was actually about bringing this person intense shame and pain. History tells us that in one event in history, Spartacus' whole army, it could be up to 120,000 people, were crucified along the roads. It was a public demonstration of the power and might of the person who was doing the crucifying, invented by the Persians, made very effective by the Romans. So when you hear the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead, just actually he wasn't dead, he was just taking a long nap, you need to understand some history. Romans don't make mistakes when it comes to the crucifixion. They invented a word to describe the pain of crucifixion, and that word is excruciating. That's where the word excruciating comes from, the crucifix. That the crucifix and excruciating was actually a vile swear word at the time because it is not something that society would talk about. You would hang on the cross, naked, beaten, scourged, Jesus, the sacrifice of all sacrifices. They wouldn't crucify women, or at least I should say it was very rare for ladies to be crucified. If they did so, it was not nice to see their faces, so they would actually crucify them looking into the cross. The cross was a brutal form of execution. You would hang either by rope or by nails, and we know from the account with Jesus, it was by large stakes through what would more likely either be the hand or the wrist, but perhaps the wrist. And basically, you die slowly suffocating. You would lose your ability to hold in your bodily fluids, and you would hang sometimes up to eight days in excruciating pain. My Lord, my Savior, my Rescuer. And somehow we've made the cross something that we put in as jewelry. This isn't my analogy, but some people would say that would be the equivalent these days of having a, a lethal injection around you know, a piece of jewelry of lethal injection around your body or perhaps an electric chair hanging from your ears. But Christians very purposefully chose the symbol of the cross. In fact, it was Christians that first part started putting the mark of the cross on their body. The cruelest and most hideous manner of execution and Jesus hung on the cross. See, the Romans were good at their job. And eventually they would pierce Jesus' side, the scriptures tell us, with the spear and blood and water comes out. So again, that would suggest that perhaps part of the reason Jesus died was of a broken heart, of a bruised heart, of a damaged heart. Jesus became our substitute, the sacrifice of sacrifices. And again, if you read around history and especially around good Christian commentary, you will find that, and Paul refers to this in the New Testament, that the cross is an offense. It's disgusting. 
It's gross. We cannot look at the cross with a shrug of our shoulders and walk away because Jesus would have hung on the cross, surrounded by crowds, deriding him. And Mark does a great job of actually describing what that mockery was like as he hung hour after hour in desperate pain, slowly suffocating, potentially his lungs filling up with blood. But that wasn't the most painful thing for Jesus, the scriptures tell us. Or at least the scriptures suggest to us. You see, as we look to the cross, it brings great offense to us. Because that, listen, that gives you an inkling of the offense our sin is to God. Your sin and my sin. Your thoughts, your deeds, your actions, your responses... I know who I am, and you know who you are. And so as I give what is really a feeble description of the brutality of the cross, it just gives you a faint echo of how gross our sin is to God. But he doesn't leave us there. See, in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 21, it says, God made him, that is Jesus, God made him, God's plan made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus alone is without sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. So as Jesus is on the cross, he actually becomes that sacrificial lamb, that sacrifice that the Old Testament scriptures um, uh, point to, that Jesus becomes that for us and, and, and he dies and his sin, and sorry, our sin is applied to him. He becomes our substitute. The sacrifice of sacrifices. He becomes, list friends, he became your sin, the Bible says. That was the greatest pain for Jesus. He became your sin. So as we look at the cross, we can actually see that the cross is good news because it brings us back to the original design that God had for us. That fulfillment, that purpose. It's, in the Bible, it's called reconciliation. We're reconciled back to that original plan that we now have at one moment because that sin is now being punished. That sin has been dealt with through his son. That's God's plan for you. Jesus died for you. In Romans, it says, He was delivered over to death for us. Romans 5.8, While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once and for all for the unrighteous. 1 John verse, chapter 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice. You have to do theological gymnastics to make the Bible say that Jesus was not our substitute. And there was a push towards that a few years ago. For those of you who kind of geek out on theology, we would call this theology penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning the penalty of sin. Substitutionary meaning that Jesus takes our place for that sin. Atonement is a result of those two things we are brought together with God. It is the greatest, most profound, most important doctrine and theology you will find in the Bible. Because, friends, it is the Bible. If you don't believe that, you're going to be uncomfortable in this church. (laughs) Because God looks at you and me and says, I've got a plan. 
I have a plan to bring that restoration. I have a plan for the most broken. I have the plan for those that are hurting the most. I have a plan for those who are sinners. I have a plan for the unrighteous. And that plan, his name is Jesus. And we we bring restoration back to the Imago Dei. Perhaps some of the most profound words you will find in Mark, perhaps in The Bible, as this statement, as said by Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, Jesus is sin, it says in Galatians. And remember I said God can't have anything to do with sin? So he took on that sin. What's interesting is all through the New Testament, Jesus refers to God as his father. My father this, my father this, our father, 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 Abba, father, 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 until he gets to the cross, then it's God. Isn't that interesting? Because the relationship is severed for those moments, only to be brought back together. Our debt is paid. This is why it's good news, friends. Jesus went to the cross for me. And that's why the words that he utters earlier on in the New Testament, it says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from what? The stresses of your life? The challenges of your life? No. That's secondary. I will give you rest. What from? Your financial pressures, from, from, the, uh, from the health issues you might be feeling, as important as those things are? No. That is not what Jesus is speaking to. What he's saying is, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because I will transform the very core of who you are. So that when it comes to those health issues and those financial issues and the stresses and the pressures in life, you're actually now a different person. The Bible says a new creation. He takes away our guilt. He takes away our sin. He takes away our punishment. He cleanses us from our unrighteousnesses. He applies righteousness to our lives. He says, I will empower you to live life and life to the full because the alternative is death. You will try and figure out how to do things yourself. You will try and find saviors to transform who you are, but you will fail. If you think you are different, then look to the world, the constant chase for what? For rest. See, no one can do what Jesus can do. You know, when you watch football games, you'll often see somebody, American football games, holding up John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. God gave his son. See, we are saved from God. As John Stott put it, we are saved from God For God, by God. We're saved from God's wrath, for his purposes, for his glory, by God Jesus. What a brilliant plan. He can do that which no one else can do in our own power. So as I pull this together, here's where I want us to land. If you are in any doubt 
as to whether or not God loves you, look to the cross, the passion, the love, the purpose, the sacrifice, because He loved you. You see, the weight of sin placed upon Jesus, it says He was crushed for our iniquities so that we could have eternal life. You want to know what true love is? Because Jesus in all his humanity was knelt in Garden Gethsemane saying, God, if this is possible, can you let this cup, this cup of wrath, this, this punishment pass, that can there be another way? And God the Father, as you heard last week, was silent. Not my will, but your will be done. And his will was that he had to die so that you and I could live in freedom and joy and and passion and, and have all that which we were created for. This is great news of great joy. Christians in the room, do you live in the shadow of that? Do you live in the shadow of Christ victorious on the cross? See, if you're struggling with shame and worry and, 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 um, and anger and blaming and sin and habitual sin and habits, and if you're struggling with all these things, that is where Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin because the sin died with Christ. That is not who you are anymore. And if we're struggling constantly with these things, then we're not bringing them. You do not understand fully what happened on the cross because you're, 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 that's dead. That's gone. So let's not reach for that which is dead in the hope that we can bring it back into our world thinking that that somehow is going to save us. No, you're already saved. You're already loved. There's nothing you can do to change that. And sometimes we resist it thinking that we are capable. We don't understand the cross if that is the case. So today we can sing in victory, believing what Christ has done on the cross and knowing that it applies to me that I am saved. I'm loved. And if you feel unlovable, you're loved. And if you are not a Christian this morning, you have a sin problem. And that sin problem will ultimately result in your death. And you may feel like you're already dying. Jesus loves you, cares for you, is passionate about you and still is. He took the punishment for that sin. It died on the cross. And then as we're going to celebrate next Sunday, this is why this place should be packed. Little Christians bringing, dragging their non-Christian friends with them. Come listen to this, because this is going to change your life. It's the best news that we can do. It's the most loving thing we can do is share the gospel, because it truly, remember, is a rescue mission. They will be saved and rescued from that, which is pulling them down. Jesus loves you. He's alive and he is well and he's our substitute. So we have to respond to that, Christian or not, seeker or Christian for the last 70 years. We have to respond and we can't respond like this. Thinking about what we're going to do this week. If that is our response, we need to press into the reality of what this cross is about. We need to think about it, read about it, consider it, reflect, sing, pray. We need to live in the shadow of that. As Christians, we can come and we can sing and we can praise and we can thank Him, but also we can come to Him and confess those times that we're actually holding on to the old life more than reaching for the new. 
Father, forgive me for making my job my savior again. Father, forgive me for thinking that my family is somehow going to fulfill that ache inside of me. You can bring that, Christian, you can bring that again. And remember, as it says in Revelation 3, your first love, Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian, do not leave this room without surrendering and submitting and, and, and responding to this call that Jesus lovingly gives Come. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And you know what the great news is? He will. And your life will be changed forever. Literally forever. So here's what we're going to do, friends. We're going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and they're going to lead us in some worship. But I, I want to open up the front. It's not something we normally do. We have prayer at the front as a regular basis, but maybe as we're just worshiping, I'm asking you all, Christian or not, to respond to this message. Let's not be passive, and perhaps that includes you coming forward. Maybe you want to kneel. Maybe it's just singing with abandon. Maybe it's praying, whatever it looks like. Let's respond. And if you don't know Jesus, there are going to be people at the end of the service who at the front are leaders or elders who would be, uh, would be delighted to come and, and to pray with you. This is everything. It's the greatest story. Let's pray. Lord, I prayed at the beginning that you would take these words and these brief descriptions that fall so far short of the enormity of your love and your story, that, Lord, you would take these words and, Lord, you would bury them deep within good soil in our hearts. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would pour into us afresh those of us who call you, Lord, who are Christians, that, Lord, that we would respond right now. We would cry out. We would seek your forgiveness for perhaps forgetting this story. For reaching for other things. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us for thinking that our mission in life is something different than sharing this story and living this story out. God, renew us, revive us, I pray, as a church. And Lord, for those who don't know you in this room, and Lord, they know who they are. I don't. That Lord, that they would respond to your gospel. Come. If you're weary, come. If you're burdened, come. If you're seeking answer in the things and distractions of this world, come. And you will find rest. 
And it starts with those words, Lord, Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. Lord, I pray you would press into one, each one of us that this, this story is not a depressing thing. This is good news. This is good news. That the old is gone and the new has come. Thank you, Lord.